Hello, and welcome to this episode of Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. It's the morning after the budget the day before. So how did Jeremy Hunt's big day go? We'll analyse the Chancellor's statement, assess his announcements, and ask if he's right to say that the economy under his stewardship is proving the doubters wrong. That's the big story of the week in Westminster, but a week is a long time in Westminster. And next week, the news cycle moves on, and attention will return to Boris Johnson. The former PM is up before the Privileges Committee to put his case in their inquiry into whether or not he lied to Parliament over Partygate. We'll look ahead to the big showdown. I'll be joined throughout by two IFG economic experts who in former lives worked in government, and that's senior fellow Giles Wilkes. Hi, Giles. Good morning, Hannah. How are you? I'm good, thank you. And senior fellow Jill Rutter. Hi, Jill. Hi, Hannah. And I'm delighted that Henry Hill, deputy editor at the influential website Conservative Home, is joining us for today's episode. Hi, Henry. Good morning. So let's start with the story of the week, and that's the budget. For this part of the podcast, we're going to be joined by Ollie Bartram, our senior economist. Hi, Ollie. Hi, Hannah. Have you recovered from yesterday yet? Just about. It's it's nice to be back in the rhythm of one or two fiscal events a year rather than seven. <laughs> so, as you say, the budget is one of supposed to be one of the big fixtures in the parliamentary calendar. Given recent events, and in particular the actions of recent chancellors, this was a big moment for Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak's government. Henry, can I ask you to kick off? This was Jeremy Hunt's first proper budget. Did he do a good job? I mean, within the very limited sort of field of, of possibility and expectation that I think govern, governs budgets at the moment, yeah, he didn't, he didn't tread on too many immediately obvious landmines. Um, the government has relatively little uh, fiscal room for manoeuvre. They're conscious that there's probably going to, be, there's going to be a general election, most likely in 2024. They want to have giveaways ready for then. So he's trying to create a little bit of, of space to, to do that closer to the time. There was a big focus on childcare, which is an important subject. I'm not entirely sure whether or not this policy is, is, is what we need, but it was, it was at least a sign that the Conservative Party is cognizant of the fact that it needs to have a, a decent offer for people so of age 30 to, to, to 55 in order to try and win back some of those voters that it's lost and you know grading on a curve relative to the last budget or the last sort of mini budget or whatever we're calling it it was a it was a soaring success the government has not <laughs> immediately caught fire and fallen over um so so it's kind of done the job and unfortunately the job of this government has so far been being the not this trust government and it has achieved that um and for which we're all very grateful but it wasn't really an ambitious budget and it didn't sort of tackle the real structural issues that are actually at the root cause of the fact that the UK has sluggish growth. Now, admittedly, most Conservative governments, at least this current Conservative government, can't do that because it would involve pissing off too many of their voters. Uh, but nonetheless, that is a, a, a failing. And what did you make of the of the sort of pitch rolling ahead of the announcement? Do you think that uh, the government will be happy with the way the media's uh, been managed and has responded? Uh yeah, so far-ish. Um, it's been pretty good. I think. I think. I do think that the overall media strategy for budgets is sometimes quite counterproductive because mm-hmm. you 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 end up sort of telling people a lot of the good stuff in advance, and then most of the surprise is bad. And so, budget day and immediately post-budget day is full of all the bad stuff that we didn't know about beforehand, which um, isn't necessarily the best. But uh, you know, the media response this morning hasn't been incredibly hostile. There's been some stuff about Labour planning to spike the pensions policy. There's been talk of a Tory revolt over taxes, although that was probably to be expected. But but yeah, yeah a lot of the headline issues uh, that Jeremy Hunt would have wanted to be front and centre in the press, such as the, the pensions reforms and childcare, have been prominently placed. And that's probably about what they were hoping for. 
Henry, I did think it was a bit odd, though, that the one sort of rabbit yesterday was uh, in a sort of slight echo of quasi Quarteng uh, abolishing the 45p rate was that they seem to have briefed that the lifetime allowance is going to go up to 1.8 million and that was sort of you know, written off sort of or whatever. And then Jeremy Hunt sort of said, you're thinking I'm going to raise it, but I'm going further. I'm abolishing it altogether. And that was the one sort of bit of new news we got yesterday. And that struck me as a very odd thing to draw so much attention to. Uh, do you think that was a mistake or a sort of oversight or quite why did that come about? Um, I don't think it was. I, I, it'll be interesting to see if it does turn out to be a mistake. The crucial difference between the 45p tax rate and the pension allowance is that uh, the pension allowance is kind of aimed at getting at getting an older cohort of people who are kind of overwhelmingly conservative still uh, back into work. And the challenge for the conservatives, given that they've set themselves this mission of trying to get economically inactive people back into work, is that one of the cohorts they're targeting, uh, people who are fortunate enough to have been able to retire early, uh, are one of the few sectors who can genuinely say that the current economy economy is working for them and they built up all that wealth using rules that the Tories oversaw. So they can only get them back with carrots and therefore things like this are an attempt to resolve that problem. I do think it's going to be tricky for the government if they keep doing these measures which benefit disproportionately older and let's be honest wealthier people at the same time as working age people and especially younger people are facing very high usurious marginal tax rates and are struggling with the basics of life. But it's genuinely, with the best will in the world, I have some sympathy because it's very difficult for the Conservative Party not to pander to the electoral cohort, which is still very dominant and which is voting for them. Chancellor on the Today programme this morning was very much trying to put the emphasis on this being a good thing for the NHS and public services, even though I think Nick Robinson was being more sceptical about that. Ollie, the IFG posed six questions ahead of Budget Day for the government. Did any of the answers surprise you? Did we get all the answers? So I think the big surprise for me was uh, more of an omission from the budget than, than anything that was in it. Uh, as we've just discussed, we sort of got most of the big news about policies in the days leading up to the budget. But two of our questions were around public spending. So uh, what was Jeremy Hunt going to do to tackle some of the issues that <clears throat> public services are facing, uh, as as we've highlighted in, in Performance Tracker, uh, sort of against the back, backdrop of a large number of strikes, including on the day itself. Um, and a second question was, uh, what was Jeremy Hunt going to do about capital spending? Um, there's huge input cost inflation for construction and infrastructure projects. Um, and keeping budgets as they are is sort of an acceptance that less will be built than was originally intended. So I was quite surprised to see very little discussion of public services, of strikes, of the the. the the inflation that is affecting capital projects, though perhaps I shouldn't be surprised, but but shocked instead, because keeping budgets tight is what allowed him to make some giveaways beyond 2025 on childcare and pensions while staying within his fiscal rules. You've written a lot for us about energy. Where has this budget left us in relation to support packages? So... The Chancellor confirmed that he's going to extend the energy price guarantee. So that 
sort of caps the amount that the average household will spend on energy at two and a half thousand pounds. It was set to rise to three thousand pounds. So that is going to help households over the next quarter. We then expect prices to drop well below two and a half thousand pounds, thanks to a fall in wholesale prices uh, across Europe. Has uh, generally been very good news on energy since since the last uh, since the last budget. But while there is sort of still quite a good amount of support in place um, and particularly targeted at the lowest income households. So we still have targeted payments for pensioners and for those on welfare um, uh, over the next year. The big story for me, particularly from the forecast yesterday, was that we're still facing, despite that support, a huge fall in living standards. It's the worst since records began, likely the worst since World War II. If we look at real wages, they're not expected to recover to their 2008 level until 2026. Uh, so that's sort of 18 lost years, potentially. Um, and I think that's that's the really big story. Giles, that's what's going to be shaping how voters are feeling ahead of the next election. I mean, you've seen a few budgets in your time. What was your analysis yeah. of how this one compared yeah, dismayingly for policy wonks everywhere, voters don't go to the sort of medium term projections for real GDP growth or things like that. They just go to their felt experience. And the absolutely devilishly awful thing about a supply side recession, such as the one we've been suffering since, uh, I don't know, 2022, basically, is that it affects everybody's living standards. It's not like a a sudden shock to the economy that causes a rise in unemployment. But a lot of people, if they keep their jobs, they actually do better because prices fall and they actually get a little bit richer. This is a recession that hurts everybody's living standards. And it comes on top of various tax measures like freezing in the, the thresholds for income tax, which means that people are going to feel they're just not getting better off, even as the economy recovers. Even if we actually get, avoid a recession, there'll be a a living standards recession anyway. And that's how most people judge things. They look around and see whether they're better off or not. They don't tend to find out whether we're this or that that place in the league table of G- GDP growth and so on. I mean, they're not the only audience, though. I mean, I, I think Jeremy Hunt's done a good job in that he had to obviously steady the ship last autumn, and he did that fine. But as Henry said, you know, almost anything could be better than what was going before. He just had to sort of stand still and not faint at the dispatch box, and he was going to do okay. And then he had a spell of luck. Uh, Gas prices fell considerably, which meant not very much to normal people because their prices were already fixed, but to the Treasury, it meant a huge windfall. And likewise, interest rates came off for a long time as it looked like inflation was finally cresting and central banks were looking towards stopping tightening policy. And that would have left him with quite a lot of money. But um, his luck seems to run out in the last few weeks as inflation's gotten a little more stubborn and we've had these financial market eruptions caused by the collapse of a bank in California another near collapse in Switzerland, and it suddenly feels a bit more dicey. So he's, um, yeah, he's, he faces a difficult situation. But otherwise, I think he's done an all right job. Some of the stuff he did on childcare and, and capital allowances is really big. I mean, if the capital allowances one is ultimately rendered permanent, that's a tax reform equally um, weighty compared to anything Quasi Quateng tried to do. It might have a bigger impact. Just on those capital allowances, though, Giles, I do think it was a huge mistake to not follow through on the aspiration to make them permanent. Yeah, I think throughout the budget, we did see quite a bit of gaming of the fiscal rules leading to 
potentially bad policy outcomes. So we have the HS2 decision to stretch the cost out over multiple years. We have the capital allowances decision to only put it in place for three years rather than permanently. Now, both of those, the Treasury has been quite explicit that they did those in order to meet the debt falling as a percent of GDP rule, but they have really perverse effects. So the decision on HS2 is creating loads of instability and uncertainty. If you're going to do it, you need to commit. The capital allowances thing, despite costing £9 billion per year, the OBR doesn't think it's going to have any effect on cumulative business investment or yeah. on the total capital stock at the end of the forecast. Now, they could have had a much more sort of uh, positive policy for long-term growth if they had made that permanent. But sort of sticking so, yeah. so, so strictly to and- those fiscal rules sort of limited that. And then just, I guess, one more example is, the really tight spending plans that are penciled in for beyond the spending review period, they are frankly implausible. They imply 10% cuts for um, non-protected departments, so outside of health, um, education, defence, beyond the spending review period, which is not plausible. But he could only make the giveaways and stay within his fiscal rules by sticking to those implausible plans. Yeah. I think there's going to be real attention on those fiscal rules because they're, they're perverse in more ways than one. I mean, the only thing that matters is whether year five is better than year four in terms of a debt ratio. You can have all sorts of jiggery-pokery in the meantime. And as you say, point out, in this case, it constrained him from doing something that might have been better for the country. My my suspicion is that he's going to make it permanent when the next horizon movement happens. And it gives him an extra rabbit to bring out, just like he did this time. It also assumes that we go back, allegedly, to indexing fuel duty, which is counted by the OBR at some point. I think the OBR really needs to throw down the gauntlet to the Treasury and say, unless you give us some evidence that you're ever prepared to put this duty up, we are going to stop scoring it like that. Because your clear reveal preference is that you just freeze this in perpetuity, yet we always score it as a revenue source in the forward numbers. So they have done a bit of that this time because there was a Treasury Select Committee report recently focusing on this. Uh, uh, Richard, the chair of the OBR, said at their press conference yesterday that, you know, I think they find it quite frustrating. He didn't say this, but you could sort of uh, get it from how he's speaking. They find the whole thing quite frustrating. But in this economic and fiscal outlook, it's sort of buried deep in the numbers somewhere. But they do show how far away the Chancellor is from meeting his fiscal targets with or without that um, forecast for, for fuel duty. His his headroom shrinks to a sort of wafer thin £2 billion at the end of the forecast if, if you sort of don't don't keep that quite implausible assumption on fuel duty. So they're starting to do that a bit, but they are quite constrained in what they can do. But Charles is right. There's a real world decisions like the HS2 deferral. It just makes a nonsense of, you know, if you are committing it to a capital programme, do it as quickly and cost effectively as possible. Because what we always forget with capital programmes, we're doing them because they've got bring benefits. And you might as well have the benefits sooner rather than later, rather than postpone them and actually add to the overall costs of the programme. I think there's lots of gnashing of teeth around Whitehall about that decision as uh, as a really counterproductive one and an example of you know the worst sort of treasury short-termism. Giles, the big theme from the government's point of view was um, reversing the shrinking workforce. That was a big sort of theme of what this budget was designed to achieve. Is it really going to do that? 
Well, it will. I mean, the OBR had a rather nice little analysis of this. The OBR's documents, by the way, I just think are getting better and better. They're a real education in how economics works. And they went through each of the measures. The childcare stuff, which is coming in in a couple of years, 65,000 more workers, they think. The um, enabling really well-off people to save even more and therefore carry on working, 15,000. And various sort of tweaks and nudges and um, on, on in the welfare system make the whole total up to 110,000 people. They estimate that on average these are not going to be as uh, rich jobs as you'd get from the economy normally. So they think the 0.3% boost in the employment rate will produce a 0.2% rise in the GDP, which is, what, 5 billion, 6 billion. So it doesn't quite wash its face in terms of the cost. But then obviously not all of – I mean – things can't always pay for themselves. The childcare is good in itself. People are really angry about this and they want a state that covers you for those years. So I would say that the labour supply boost is almost a bonus. So that's got, I mean, it's a really good example of what supply side policy means, the sort of stuff that Thatcherites believe in. And what's really humbling about it is you do really well. The OBR says this is the highest increase in the economic potential we've ever scored from um, fiscal measures announced at a budget. And it's 0.2 or 3% of GDP. If you really want to boost the economy, you've got to do so many things. To put it in a slightly slightly a controversial way, 0.2% is about 1 20th of a Brexit. So, you know, it's very easy to break things and it's really hard to mend them. We've got a long way to go. Henry, we had this sort of four E's slogan. Do you think that's going to resonate with the public? I mean, no. Maybe I'm wrong, but I cover the Conservative Party professionally and I cannot immediately recall what they all are. So the prospects of them sinking through to the public at large is relatively remote. I mean, if you think about the really effective slogans like education, 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 that's one word and it's kind of snappy and it has a point to it, whereas this is kind of just a sort of free association of things that begin with the letter E. So I, I suspect that they will have replaced it with another one um, before the next election. But ultimately, as with any of this stuff, I don't really think this particular budget and that particular message is really aimed directly at the public. I don't think this is something that you know Isaac Levito or anyone at CCHQ has come up with and polled to death. This is something that is a bit snappy. It gets people talking about the right things in the media, which is what they're aiming for at this point. And I, sus I well, I, at least I strongly hope um, that the pre-election slogan will be something with a slightly clearer uh, and more concise point to it. And Ollie, just before you go, you mentioned you were surprised by how little there was in the budget about public services. Obviously, a lot of people's experience of the past week will involve, have involved quite a lot of disruption due to strikes, schools, trains, tubes, so, and so on. Is, was there anything in the budget that's going to uh, begin to address problems in public services? There was nothing really in the speech and there was no sort of increase in day-to-day -day funding for departments that would allow them to meet wage settlements while also dealing with all of the other problems they face, backlogs, etc. Though there is one perhaps glimmer of hope buried deep within the scorecard, um, which is uh, the Treasury has tucked away about £13 billion a year into the reserves, which is certainly enough to increase public sector wages by enough to um, resolve the strikes, uh, according to some estimates, including from the Resolution Foundation. So it's potentially a bit of hope there, but there was no rhetoric really around 
solving the strikes or any of the issues with public services in the speech or in the budget document. So I think we're just going to have to wait and see. Let's turn to the politics of all this. Jeremy Hunt claimed, and the OBR figures show, that the UK will not now enter a technical recession this year. Giles, will the voters thank the government for that? Well, as, as I observed earlier, they don't tend to feel these things. I mean, obviously, it's better that, than we did, and that would have been waved in them in their, in their faces, particularly if no other European country did. So, yeah, it's good that we haven't, but it's entirely because of the um, weather. The weather basically meant that we were using much less gas and the gas price fell from three bucks a firm to one pound fifty, which, by the way, is still incredibly expensive. And that has lowered RPI to a certain degree. And and in, and so as a result, the same cash incomes are going slightly further. So we're avoiding a recession. It's nice that that's not happening and that it's going to feed into some of the economic projections. But I can't see the voters really applauding that. But I, what I do, I mean, I, what I'd emphasise again, though, the voters aren't so, these automatons who just sort of look at their cash going up and down and then work out who to vote for there. There's the, there's the vibe of the government too. And it does feel like this government has a plan. It's a really difficult plan. It's not one that says with one with one single bold action we can spring free of this declinist period. But it is one that sort of says, you know, if we really work at things and pay attention to the details, and I think the absolute classic achievement of this government is the Windsor Agreement for to normalise relations with Northern Ireland and the EU. If we keep doing this sort of thing, you're going to start seeing some results. And so they can then tell a story in 18 months' time that, you know, we've made progress, it's difficult, everything's difficult, but you want a serious, competent government delivering on things. And look, we have delivered on things. And I think they've got a chance of being able to tell that story, whether the voters will have the patience to really listen it or might just or might just say, you know, OK, but we've had enough of you is another matter. And Henry, from the Conservative Party's point of view, is that a, a narrative that they're going to want to embrace? Or do you think a lot, there's going to be a lot of emphasis from Tory MPs now on Hunt to, to, to talk about what, what taxes are going to be cut ahead of the next election as well? I mean, there are go. There, there, there is a big constituency in the parliamentary Conservative Party, and you know, indeed, amongst the activists for tax cutting, conservatism. You know, this kind of Thatcherian ideal of what they think conservatism is. So that pressure will, of course, be there. But I think that looking ahead to the next election, specifically, the bigger issue for a lot of Tory MPs, especially Tory MPs in red wall seats and so on, is that they want stuff they can put on their leaflets. Um, this is this is a complaint that I've that I've heard several times. Basically, you know, voters in those in those constituencies took a chance on the Conservatives in twen- in 2019. They thought they were getting a different sort of Conservative Party that was more receptive to their concerns, and they're worried. Those MPs are worried that if that is not the case and those seats go back to Labour, you know, once bitten twice shy, it might take a long time for the Tories to make inroads in those areas again. So. What they want more than headline tax cuts is they want to be able to say, look, you know, you voted Conservative in 2019 and now our area has got X, Y and ideally Z. Um, Please vote for us again. So I suspect that what we're more likely to see from the government, rather there will be some tax cuts uh, because they're the Conservatives, but rather than a big emphasis uh, on tax cuts, it will be an awful lot of George Osborne style finding money down the back of the sofa for for a new something in as many marginal seats as they possibly can. We had this um, thing called the Regional Growth Fund in the coalition, which was, I, I, I used to derisively call it the bung pot, because basically 
two politicians and a bunch of civil servants would sit in a committee deciding which places get which bunks because the, the regional development agencies had been scrapped and we needed things that could boost regional growth and that was a big missing piece of the coalition's armory. But basically, it was exactly what Henry's described there, like come to this area here and this MP has lobbied successfully to have a, a factory site done up or a swimming pool done up or something like this. It was the most explicit pork barrel creation that's happened recently, as far as I can see. And my impression all along was it didn't work politically. It certainly didn't work for the Lib Dems. Nobody ever really votes for a party on the basis of industrial strategy, as far as I know, even if it's like really explicit, porkish industrial strategy like that. Because I don't know whether they just don't see the connection between a politician and the building or the machine or whatever it is that's being subsidised, or maybe it just moves too slowly, but it's just a really slow way of getting your vote. But it was quite notable, I thought, that under the sort of Chancellor's Everywhere E theme, there were some sort of explicit call-outs which suggested that, frankly, just lobby Jeremy Hunt and he'll find some money for you, I thought, in a sort of way that, as a former Treasury official, I was wincing that a Chancellor looked quite such a soft touch for people who came and banged down his door and thought, you know, this way lies madness. But I'd be very interested to know, Henry, whether, you know, all, what was the sort of politics of all those shout outs to individuals who'd come and uh, made their case for specific things. And we'll say, you know, the big place announcements around investment zones and that big new devolution set of deals, the one to Manchester, which is sort of, you know, Andy Burnham, maybe it's designed to foster Keir Starmer, Andy Burnham rivalry, who knows, and to Andy Street. Are those going to cut through much with anyone? Well, I mean, the politics of those shout outs is that basically every single one of those MPs will hopefully get a write up in their local paper saying Chancellor, you know, praises X for delivering Y for our area. And then that MP can go around saying, I am X, your effective local champion. I am listened to by the Chancellor. Um, so that's the entirety of what that was about. Will it work? Um, I'm not entirely sure. Obviously, lots of voters are, you know, are, are not what is sometimes in the jargon called high information voters. They basically tune in at election time. They vote on big picture vibes or they vote on specific issues such as childcare, which are really nationally run. But if you're a, if you're a Tory MP and you're working off the information you're getting from your canvassers and they're suggesting that it's a close race, then I think that at the margins, this kind of stuff can make a difference, or at least lots of Tory MPs seem to think at the margins that it can make a difference uh the, the government's not being quite as blatant about it as it as it, as it was previously I, I can't remember which by-election it was that amanda milling said basically gosh i really hope that voters will think carefully about which mp will be best placed to talk to robert jenrick about getting access to some of this money um but you know ultimately in in a the the political oversight of funds uh in a in a democratic country is uh, does involve some inevitably it involves politics so i think i probably object to it slightly less than some of the other people on the on, on the podcast but yeah, whether or not it works, this is what they think. They think that if they have a limited pot of money, you want a few big headline measures, but then you also want to try and channel as much of it into kind of granular, targeted, marginal seat love bombing. And what do you think of the bigging up of Andy Burnham, which I know sort of, you know, didn't uh, Nick Timothy and Theresa May have some reservations about the George Osborne mayors sort of creating these very powerful uh, city figures who, by and large, were from Labour. Do you think these devolution deals are going to go down well with more autonomy for those areas? It seemed to be going down quite well with Jake Berry yesterday when I was watching him on 
Peston, but well, I mean, I suppose I suppose if you want to give a lot of powers to um, sort of Tees Valley and Birmingham, then it then it helps if you can also say that you're you're giving them to Manchester, um, and obviously bigging up one Labour mayor will help if ever the Conservatives get round to abolishing the London one, which they keep in, uh, occasionally talking about. So, I mean, the problem the problem with this from the big picture is that the Conservatives, because they've changed leader and changed cabinet so often, they haven't really had a coherent policy on devolution for more than about two years at a time. So this government, this version of the Tory party, it does seem to think that giving uh, big cities more autonomy and more power to set their own to set their own policies will deliver growth, and maybe it will. The tension with that has always been, you know, if you give somewhere like Manchester the ability to generate its own revenue, do you then withdraw Westminster support? And if you do that, are you risking creating a postcode lottery, which voters always hate? So there are lots of tensions there. But whether or not this enthusiasm for devolution will survive a change of leader, um, I've got no idea. And Henry, just, I mean, continuing on this theme of, of what's going to motivate voters at the next election, the childcare package doesn't come in at once, HS2 has been delayed. Do you, do you feel as though there's enough sort of jam today in this budget? I suspect that what will probably happen is that there will be jam in a year's time. Basically, there will be there will be plenty of jam just ahead of the election. But voters have, have you know have short memories. You know, gratitude is, is a lively expectation of favours to come. So you don't want to hand out all your jam now and then have them sort of standing there with empty spoons just ahead of the next election. So that's what I think they're doing. HS2, frankly, you know, I'm a big. I, I really wish this country built much more stuff. But HS2 is deeply unpopular with conservative voters, so they're not going to care about that getting pushed back. And the childcare policy, I think, is an example of Jeremy Hunt trying to borrow from Gordon Brown's playbook of, of setting lots of. Tra- for Labour, because basically a lot of these policies, the costs really kick in after the next election. And if the Conservatives have lost it, which, you know, all of the auguries suggest they currently will, then Labour's potentially going to be faced with a very difficult set of questions about either financing this stuff, cutting Tory welfare expansion or, or some other unpalatable choice. And Giles, given how long this government has been in power, albeit for some period in coalition, do you think that that, that record is going to be straightforward for for hunt to take to the country or is he trying to say this is this is a fresh start and as henry says you know setting up his own uh, strategy for for how labor is going to have to deal with with what he's set up if it wins the next election i think they will have a really difficult story to tell i mean i was quite surprised by the angle he took up in the speech at some point which i guess he has to sometimes is look at what awful things we inherited in 2010 but i think the labor party will be able to point to public services are going to be a much bigger more salient issue now than they were in 2010 because in 2010 a lot of the things that seem to be going wrong now weren't going wrong so there's a lot of comparisons there that will look bad labor will no doubt rather cheekily say look at the debt we left you behind with that quite 50 or 60 percent debt now it's 100 the the growth of the economy is a lot slower the the sort of the, there seems to be an awful lot of messes to fix and i think labor feel that genuinely it's not just a sort of a spin line they honestly think that a lot of stuff has been broken and they're worried about how difficult it is to get it going again so i think they labor would probably love to play on the field which is how do how do you feel compared to 2010 do you think the country has really been improved by 14 years of conservative government by then and i think they'll have lots of variables to point out that say this is we've gone in the wrong direction, time for a new change. I, I, th- I think that might be tough for the Conservatives to counter, but this standard approach will be to say, look, things have gotten better. And in a sense, it's good for the government to have had such an idea last autumn. They can say, look, things are a lot better than they were last autumn, and sort of mutter under their breath that these, are, these weren't really 
the Conservatives that you're now voting for, the Trust and the, the Kwarteng and the Rees Mogg crew. It's just, again, it seems really easy for the opposition to just point at those people and say, those are the people you're really voting for. Rishi's nice enough, he's diligent, hardworking, but he's never really won a leadership election. This is the, really the party of Truss and Jacob Rees-Mogg and Boris Johnson, and look what a mess they made of things. So I think it's a really difficult story for them to tell, particularly, as Henry points out, voters only sort of switch on for a little while, and they're going to switch on during what will still feel like a pretty difficult year. And Jill, just to finish with you, we didn't hear very much about Brexit, apart from the Brexit pub guarantee. What's that? Well, we actually heard a bit more about Brexit, Hannah. Uh, We did have the Brexit pub guarantee means that we're reducing duties on pints sold in pubs, if that's what you like to do. And we're also having a Windsor framework dividend because that can also apply in Northern Ireland because uh, that's within the agreement that he reached on how we can apply excise duties and things like that. So that was, I mean, there was actually a more important bit of Brexit, frankly, than pubs, which was on regulation. You know, some people have been saying, well, the Prime Minister and Chancellor used the opportunity of their success in the Windsor framework to follow through and ditch the retained EU law bill. We didn't get that, but we did get some more news on regulation quite an interesting bit for Brexit watchers was the, you might say, rather overdue announcement that we would effectively passport through uh, drug and treatment approvals by other big agencies. So if the European Medicines Agency and possibly also the US Food and Drug Administration approve a drug, it would automatically be passported to be available in the UK UK market. And actually that sort of sorts out one of the things people were a bit worried about the Windsor framework, that drugs could be approved for use in Ireland, but not uh, in Northern Ireland. So that's quite an interesting uh, sign of the new and that our regulator would be focusing on developing uh, sort of you know, advanced protocols for innovative medicines and things like that to try and create a bit of comparative advantage for UK regulation. We also got some announcements on AI and quantum computing, which are totally beyond me, but which were sort of early fruits of these reviews that Jeremy Hunt announced the autumn statement by Patrick Valance, uh, the outgoing chief scientist, who I think is about to be in conversation at the IFG uh, in not too distant future. So people can quiz him about the quantum computing strategy and what a quantum enabled economy exactly is. But there were sort of bits of that, of the sense of the Hunt view of you know, how you use regulatory divergence is much more targeted and things like that. But it's quite interesting. It effectively means we've handed back most of our drugs regulation to the EU, which I think is a very sensible move. But, you know, some people are, are saying, is this really what taking back control was supposed to mean? Well, let's move on to a subject that will dominate next week in Westminster, and that's the upcoming appearance of Boris Johnson before the Privileges Committee, 2pm on the 22nd of March, and it will be televised. Jill, can you give us the quick summary? What is this committee? What are they looking to find out? And what could the consequences be? Well, of course, the real person who should be doing this is you, Hannah, (laughs) as our parliamentary expert here. So do leap in and correct me when I get anything wrong. So the Privileges Committee are the sort of MPs, Four Conservatives, two Labour, one SNP, who effectively sort of sit in judgment on their peers, uh, judging whether, you know, 
MPs have upheld the rules of the House, particularly here about this charge against Boris Johnson, that when he repeatedly denied that there had been parties in Downing Street and that guidance had been followed at all times, was he misleading them? Was he either misleading them knowingly and intentionally or was he mis- misleading them inadvertently, but then failing to correct the record uh, as soon as he found out? Um, so what we've had, and we had a very interesting report from the Privileges Committee published um, 10 days ago, which, if you like, lays out the sort of case against Boris Johnson, why the committee believes he has a case to answer on those. And they have some quite intriguing WhatsApp exchanges from inside number 10, some very interesting things about whether he was relying on press office lines to take as assurances. And what we'll see next week, and I think it will be everybody tuning in, 2 p.m., Wednesday, popcorn at the ready for this interrogation. I think whatever we're tuning in to see, how does the former prime minister answer those charges? What I thought was also very interesting on the Privileges Committee is firstly that that sort of report went out and seemed to have no objections to the Conservatives on the committee, despite the fact in itself it you know, suggests that Boris Johnson has quite a serious case to answer. But I thought the other really interesting development on this and I don't know whether Henry will know how it's going down on the back benches, was Rishi Sunak making absolutely clear that he, unlike Boris Johnson, remember back to Owen Paterson, he didn't think that whatever the Privileged Committee might recommend about Boris Johnson was an appropriate issue for him to whip on so that he wouldn't be ordering Conservative MPs to, say, vote down a recommendation to suspend Boris Johnson if that's where the Privileges Committee ended up. There's you know, a lot of things to happen then that would be prejudging the outcome. But I thought it was a very interesting indication that he intended to revert to precedent and respect the process. And that this was sort of for MPs without the whips intervening, uh, at least now on paper, you know, at least formally intervening and sending out a three-line whip that you must vote this way. On that, um, don't know how that's gone down with Boris Johnson's supporters on the backbenches who've been trying, of course, to rubbish the entire process, not least by arguing that it's all based on the sort of tainted Sue Gray investigation as a result of her decision to try to take a job in the leader of the opposition's office. So we'll wait to see. And I think, you know, the Boris Johnson saga continues next week. And as with a lot with Boris Johnson, it'll be box office. But the great news is we don't have to pay £250,000 to hear him for three or four hours. But we are slightly bizarrely. And I think this is another thing that's really interesting. We are, however, as taxpayers, all funding lawyers in, I think, a very bizarre decision by the Cabinet Office to support paying his legal fees uh, in the public interest. And I'm not sure why defending an MP against charge of misleading parliament or a minister is in the public interest, but that's a matter for the permanent secretary at the cabinet office. So Henry, Jill was saying there, how is this going down uh, with, with Johnson's supporters? And I'm interested really in, in your take on, on how Johnson has been approaching this inquiry and seems likely to approach this hearing next week. I mean, you can probably guess how all of this is going down with with Boris Johnson supporters, some of whom honestly appear to have missed their calling flying Japanese planes into warships um, at some point in the last century. 
they are going to be very angry. And Boris Johnson has a committed band of supporters who um, believe in him and think that he's an election winner and that if only he were leader again, the Conservatives would be back to where they were before he was deposed. I don't think that's particularly credible. You know, there's a reason that, that 50 odd members of his government resigned, but they do genuinely believe that. And But they're, but they're essentially irreconcilable. And Rishi Sunak's political priority, I think, has to be making absolutely certain that he maintains a com- as complete a firewall as possible between this and his government because there is a world of difference between oh look it's another you know boris johnson the sort of ghost of christmas past um but it's ultimately this is a boris johnson era scandal and you know i'm a new broom and him ending up taking ownership of it which he would do if he was seen to intervene in support of the Prime Minister. So I think that explains his commitment to letting MPs have a free vote. As for Boris Johnson, I mean, Boris is basically, he's approaching this the same way he's approached the scandal throughout, which I think is sort of relatively counterproductive, although he has much less to lose at this point. At at every point when he was Prime Minister, he refused to get ahead of this story. It was always he offered the bare minimum explanation and then some new fact would emerge and that would be refuted and then there'd be another week of speculation and then there'd be another bare minimum explanation. And that kind of kept it going for weeks and weeks and weeks and eventually it consumed his his premiership. Now I think basically his approach is to try and brazen it out, um, be as look as confident and assertive as possible. Make sure that any clip from the televised hearings makes him look confident, makes him feel like he's innocent. And if the committee does recommend sanction, and the parliament does then vote for sanctions, to um, play the victim and disparage the process. That that seems to be quite clearly his approach. And there is a section of the Conservative Party, and indeed a section of the electorate, for whom that will work. But Giles, I mean. Everyone's made up their mind on this already, haven't they, really? Yeah, that's what always struck me as slightly bizarre about the protests um, against this whole thing, because the public has seen lots of really florid photos. Um, They've seen him raising a toast in the cabinet room, and um, they've heard the statements in Parliament that say, there was no party whatsoever. And I'm only getting used to the use of this phrase, gaslighting, but being told that something that seems apparently really obviously true, so much so that people from within his own... Downing Street were leaking out news of this to Paul Brand at ITV. To be told that that isn't true at all, and in fact you're kidding yourselves, is just going to wind up the voters more. I always remember in a much more mild and forgivable phase when Theresa May denied that there'd been any kind of a U-turn on the social care policy in the general election. It, that was what really wound people up. They said, look, we can tell you've changed the policy, just admit to it and move on. A lack of frankness with the voters I think is really, really unpopular. So the idea that he thinks he can you know, with brilliant legal advice or something, he can get away with proving that he didn't know about the parties because of some technicality or something a spad failed to mention to him or or, or deflecting blame onto someone else seems ludicrous. I think he would have done a lot better being almost uniquely a politician who can get away with this stuff to sort of, if he'd just sort of fessed up and said, yeah, well, you know me, I, it was it was all a bit of a hectic time, time and I'm really sorry. If he'd just apologised a lot earlier, as Henry said, got ahead of the story, thought through to its final conclusion and thought, you know what, I can probably get away with this. I will say, you know what, we were doing a bloody good job on COVID and we were helping to invent vaccines in that place. And as a result, you know, of course, things sometimes got a little bit jolly, but we really did the job for the British people. It's quite easy to sort of prepare that. Instead, the blatant denial, and I was shocked, shocked to find out there were parties going on in and I thought they were just playing ABBA to sort of help them work harder. I mean, it's so the lack of frankness and bad faith is what will ultimately do for him. And this, for me, builds on that. But the characteristic, I think, Giles, of the Down, of Boris Downing Street operation or the Johnson Downing Street operation was a failure to ever think more than one minute, one day ahead. You know, what will get us through the next hour 
And that's why I think we saw so many U-turns and stuff like that. And I think it's really interesting whether under Rishi Sunak, a you know, very unex- inexperienced politician, not been around very long, that whether actually we do in the shape of Sunak, Hunt, others, actually have politicians who can think a bit longer term and actually think a few moves ahead as to how these things will play out so that they don't seem to sort of keep walking into the next wall when they discover that they've turned into the broom cupboard, which is seemed to be Boris Johnson's approach to, you know, a getting away with it mentality. Maybe a sort of swattier prime minister who can think a bit longer term means we won't see those sorts of uh, mishaps that beset the Johnson administration, not just on this, but this was the sort of, if you like, apogee of the of of that strategy really backfiring very badly. And Jill, I mean, most people are going to be interested in this because they'll be interested in what the consequences are for Boris Johnson. I mean, I, I think, as I would, that the most important thing is about this question of whether it's okay for people to, to say things to Parliament that potentially make it harder for Parliament to do its job properly when it's trying to hold ministers, in this case, the Prime Minister, to account has the principle of telling the truth to parliaments taken a bit of a hit in recent years, do you think, whether or not in this case that's the conclusion? It has taken a hit. And one of the sort of slightly disappointing things about Rishi Sunak is that he too seems prepared, to, you know, even with his sort of nerdy, swatty background, to be prepared to play a bit fast and loose with some of the statements he makes at PMQs and then not not correct the record. So, yeah, I think there's a really interesting question. There's, you know, a question you addressed in a very good blog on the illegal migration bill about whether we actually have a generation of parliamentarians whose expectations of parliament, ministerial and government behaviour are now so low that it's almost sort of, you know, just accepted as the norm that, you know, you might get the facts out of the minister, you might not, you might get a chance to look at the legislation and form a view on it, but actually, no, we sort of legislate at speed and regret at leisure. It's okay to give ministers ginormous powers, which means that we won't get any say about what they do. Now, go back to retained EU law bill. It's okay to play fast and loose with international law. Now, I think there's a really interesting thing about how do we achieve a reset in Parliament of a dramatic rise in parliamentary standards. But maybe, you know, seeing a former prime minister actually being properly called out for misleading the House might be a catalytic moment uh, where people might think, actually, how have we let it come to this and might be the inflection point for a rise in standards. But I'm not holding my breath. What do you think about that, Henry? Um, I mean, I, in some in some senses, yes. Having Boris Johnson made an example of certainly with regards to to the issues specifically relating to Parliament and the House of Commons and so on, I think that may have a salutary effect. I think I think the broader picture is perhaps slightly optimistic, and I don't necessarily um, share all of the aspirations because, of course, things like uh, evolving attitude, shall we say, amongst the Conservatives towards international law, for example, they do reflect the fact that international law is evolving, and compared to say twenty or thirty years ago, it now plays a much larger role in the internal life of a nation. It places much larger constraints upon government policy than it did previously. And I think that given that that is the case, it probably cannot expect to continue to have the sort of deference that it used to receive when it was when it was much more abstract and it dealt with much more kind of arcane, explicitly foreign policy issues. So some of this is a, is a, is a kind of cultural, uh, negative cultural change. And I hope that the Boris Johnson's downfall, if downfall it is to be, will help that. But I think it's, it's wrong to kind of conflate that 
with changing attitudes towards institutions which have themselves changed and with which the Conservatives find themselves at odds for, on some occasions, legitimate political reasons. Very interesting. Well, that's it. Many thanks to Ollie Bartram, Jill Rutter, Giles Wilkes, and especially to Henry Hill. And thank you all for listening at home. Remember, you can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms. And do leave us a review. Hopefully, you'll think it's been one of the great budget performances. This podcast, that is. If you missed it, check out our special podcast on the illegal migration bill, complicated and controversial legislation, which is much easier to understand after listening to our pod. And you can find all our budget analysis on our website too, as well as new papers on the government's asylum plan and its plan for funding adult social care. We'll be back next week. Have a great weekend, everyone.